Hello, and welcome to You Should Hear This, a podcast for the everyday association professional. I'm Nick Estrada, your host. The idea that you get along with everyone at work is nothing short of a false reality. While you may not get along with everyone, there is a level of respect and professionalism that needs to be maintained at all times. With today's workforce environment different than what it was in years past, how can we ensure that we are keeping the peace and having everyone feel heard and valued? Our guest today will help us juggle these topics and provide some guidance as to what we can do. Tara Pucky, MBA, CAE, is the president-elect of the Indiana Society of Association Executives, and she's also the executive director at the Radio Television Digital News Association and Foundation, and is responsible for the overall management of association and foundation business. She's active in both ISAE and ASAE, where she's a current member of the Executive Management Professionals Advisory Council. And additionally, in 2018, she was named as an Association Forum's 40 Under 40. Welcome, Tara. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm excited to chat with you. I know today we're going to talk about probably a very fun topic that everyone just loves to spend time on, (laughs) conflict resolution. Yes. Yes. I think you presented on this at uh, ICON over the summer, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. But before we jump into that, do you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself professionally, how you've gotten to where you are today? What's been your journey? Sure. So like I'm pretty sure everybody else I know, I did not set out to be an association professional. Um, I think you should start a tally of how many people say Mm -hmm. that when you ask them this question. So I took a non-traditional route in terms of my career. I started college later than a lot of my peers. And so I approached it from a very practical sense, which was which one of the majors can I select that gives me the least amount of math? (laughs) And so when I went through the list, it narrowed it down and journalism became it. So I went to journalism school, uh, which was a great fit, actually, because I really love I, I love the practice of journalism and the craft and everything about it. And then I I got involved in an association as a journalism student. And so I got involved in the Society of Professional Journalists. As a student member, I ended up sitting on the board for a couple of years as a student board member and recognized that there was just something really wonderful about being with a group of peers who are passionate about the same topic. And weirdly enough, there became a part-time opening at the Society of Professional Journalists, which happened to be headquartered in Indianapolis. And they asked if I wanted to help out. And so I did. I started there part-time, uh, actually helping to clean up their database. So very un, uninnovative. Um, and so <laughs> I was there for a while. Um, I ended up moving into a couple different roles at SPJ, both in membership, communications, uh, associate executive director, and really just touching all elements of the association, which I loved. And I thought for a long time, the reason that I loved it was because I could be doing an element of journalism and influencing the journalism industry without having to actually be in a newsroom. My kids were young at the time, so it made sense. While I was there, I got really involved in ASAE and ISAE and really started to grow in terms of my association background. Uh, About five years ago, I made a move to the Radio Television Digital News Association, which also is in journalism. So I suppose a weird thing about me is that I've been in associations for uh, a little over 13 years and only worked for journalism associations. (laughs) So that's kind of how I got here. I I will say the one thing that I really appreciate about my journey is that it started as a volunteer 
of an association. And I think that that gives me a really good lens to understand the people that we're working with and we're serving. And so I obviously my first piece of advice, which has nothing to do with conflicts resolution, is to tell people, if you work in an association, go be a volunteer for something else because it just provides such a valuable lens. Yeah, I think that's a huge point. You're right. Not what we're talking about today, but I do think if we even harken back to a couple podcasts ago, I think we talked about volunteering and, um, you know, that is a huge thing. If we can understand what our volunteers are going through, I think that's a a key piece. Do you use more math now than you did at the beginning? Yeah. So budgets uh, (laughs) are literally the worst. I I get it. They're important. Um, I never wanted to be that person that was like, listen, finances are just the worst thing, but truly bane of my existence. (laughs) Well, we won't be talking about a lot of math today, so I'll let you off the hook there. Perfect. So as we think about, you know, conflict resolution, where do you start with that? What's your definition? What does conflict resolution look like? Why is it a skill that's important? So I think conflicts are weird in general because I think there's a ton of different types of conflict, right? And and part of the thing as humans, it's just in our general nature to have issues. I won't even use the word conflict, to have issues of some sort with other people. And I think we see them manifest enough when we're face-to-face with someone and in the same room, I think they have taken on a whole new life, I guess, in the fact that people are a little bit more displaced around the country in different areas and now working only virtually. And we have this new layer of communication that is creating new complexities around what conflicts are in the workplace. I think the definition of conflict is really, for me, truly, and this seems simple and probably ridiculous, is anytime somebody feels uncomfortable in whatever it is they're doing with someone else. A conflict doesn't always have to escalate to the point of, you know, we've got to sit down and have a third-party mediator. It's not yelling at somebody in an office. Conflict can truly be a I don't really love the vibes of this other person. And so I'm not going to work with them or I'm going to choose not to work with them when I have the choice. Because at the end of the day, conflict is something that, that forces you to change your behavior in any way. And so maybe that means changing the way you interact with them. Maybe that means from a work perspective, the tasks that are associated with working with that person. So I think it's truly like a, a huge scale in terms of conflict. And I think a lot of times where the workplace has faltered is not addressing that conflict until it reaches a critical point that's affecting the business. I think we miss a little bit in earlier conflicts where it may not necessarily be affecting the operations of the business association, take your pick. We miss that part where it's affecting the humans who are doing that work. And if we don't address it there, that's when it starts to escalate and affect business operations and the operations of the association and and perhaps others even outside kind of your staff. What does that, I mean, do you have any examples of kind of what that early on conflict could look like that if if not addressed could eventually escalate into that, you know, screaming in the middle of an office kind of conflict that we would all recognize? Yeah. So I... I think, and this is probably like a great segue into what I think is foundational before anybody is like, how do we avoid conflict in the workplace or how do we make our employees argue less? Like whatever that looks like for you. 
for me, it starts before you ever even get to that point. And it's the foundational culture around which your team is built. And so I think when you start talking about conflict at the core of conflict is relationships. And so, you know, we, we talked about this a lot at ISAE when we had this session in that if you are building good relationships with one another, you've already checked off one of the boxes that leads to less conflict. Part of conflict, especially this lens of digital Zoom meetings and we're not really being together, is the fact that we don't fully have deep, meaningful relationships with the people that we work with. It's exceptionally difficult to create those in a virtual environment. And to to circumvent that challenge, I guess, you have to put a lot of intention into creating relationships with your staff if they're all in a virtual environment, or even if you're looking at a hybrid environment. So I think some examples of this, right, is is you have two people come on board in a full-on virtual staff. They're in a staff meeting. They don't understand the nonverbals that other people are giving them because they don't know them. So if someone is sitting back in their chair and they have an expressionless face or their arms are crossed or they're clearly looking at something else while someone is speaking or sharing information, the automatic assumption of that person is going to be, A, they're not interested, B, they don't care what I'm saying, C, they just don't like me. When 100% those nonverbals are probably giving you some of that for a reason, right? But you don't have a relationship with this person. Mm-hmm. If you haven't clearly established a connection with them, it's so easy to misinterpret those things. So I guess a double down example of that would be my whole office is windows. I know that everyone on my staff knows that my whole office is windows. So when I'm looking somewhere else on a Zoom call, for example, it's not because I'm not paying attention to them. And maybe because the UPS guy just pulled in and I can Mm. see him dropping off package. They know me, they know my behaviors, they know how I act. And so when you have teams who make those meaningful connections and understand things about others that go beyond just a, here's their work description, you start to be able to head some of those off super early on, especially with the virtual connections. I think you hit on such a huge piece with the virtual side, right? I mean, I, I think conflict was already not necessarily the easiest thing um, yeah. to always address in person. But I think that as we're getting to this digital thing, it's so much easier just to write that off because at the end of the call, I'm just going to sign off and I'm not going to see you again today. Yeah. Right. I might only have to deal with you potentially once a week in a staff meeting and yeah. that's it. And so if I can put up with you for that hour, right, then I'm going to, and and that's, that's yeah. going to be it. I, I think the answer to this next question is yes, but I think if it's not, obviously let me know because I feel like we're already talking about it, that as we're seeing a lot more remote work, as associations I think are moving more towards at least hybrid work, I think, I don't know that we're ever going to go back to a full expectation of everybody has to be in the office every single right. day, right? I think we're minimally at this hybrid model where maybe you're in, but you're also not in every day. Are these relationships or is the conflict harder to resolve? virtually? That's a good question. I think the answer is yes and. Yes and that's only the case if you are not intentional about the front end of that conflict, which is creating that culture, building those relationships, and then also the back end of that conflict, right? So if part of what you are tasked with is managing a team 
and you see members of that team in conflict, A, you probably needed to be more intentional about setting a culture on the front end, right? If your team is all virtual and you started to see some of these things pop up as a result of that setup. But then B, to your point, allowing it to just sit unchecked because they don't have to stare at each other on a Zoom call for a week or two weeks or three weeks, that's letting it sit and get worse. It's letting Mm -hmm. it sit and fester. It's letting it double down on the halo horns effect, which I think is so powerful in the workplace. And we can, we can talk about that too. I just, I, I think there is a unique challenge when it comes to managing conflict in virtual settings and the people involved in the conflict, but also the management who is tasked with building that effective team. You have to be so intentional about everything you do, about staff meetings, about creating retreats for people to build relationships, about whatever that is. And all those things feed into relationships and all those feed things feed into the conflict that comes as a result of that. So I do think there's a unique challenge, but I also think that if you weren't intentional when people sat next to each other in the office, right, about creating meaningful relationships, you're going to have the exact same problems in a virtual setting. Yeah. I would agree. I think, right, like if I wasn't addressing conflict between staff in the office, right, I'm probably not doing it super well virtually either, right? So it's not necessarily that it's harder. I'm wondering if it's, if you agree with the statement, it's maybe easier to ignore digitally, yes, right? I can let it slide more often oh, yeah. virtually because again, right, at the end of this, I'm just going to hit leave meeting and we're done, right? Yep. Um, yep. I don't have to walk out of the room with you. I don't have to walk back to my desk, you know, where you're sitting across the the aisle from me. So yeah, yeah, I think those are good. Yeah. Let's dig into the halo horn thing. What is that? What's that mean? I'm not, I'm not (laughs) familiar with it. So tell me a little bit. So, so this is a concept. And once we start talking about it, people are like, Oh, that makes total sense. I already knew that. And I think that a lot of the concepts foundational to like, not just conflict resolution, but leadership, team culture, management, coaching, all those concepts, I think, are things that people inherently, like when you start talking about them, they know. I, I think you have to name them, though, because mm-hmm. naming them makes it an intentional piece. So that's neither here nor there background on halo horns. So the halo horns effect is that we essentially assign one of those two things to people that we work with. They get a halo or they get horns. And it can change. You're not stuck with it forever. But we, somewhere in our subconscious of how we interact with people, we have a halo horns assignment. And so let me give you a good example. So Jennifer works at an association and she works with a guy named Jeff and they're really great friends. They both love baseball. They go out drinking after work. They watch the games. They talk about their kids, their dogs. Like they're, they have a good relationship because back to that core, they have a good relationship. So Jeff gets halos. Uh, she also works with a guy named Josh. And Josh is always a little bit late to meetings and she's very punctual. He doesn't necessarily turn in work like she would like it done. And also they've only met once or twice. They don't have the opportunity to talk about anything they may have in common. They definitely don't know anything about each other's personal lives. So they, they don't really have a relationship. So he gets horns because he annoys her, right? So take the same two people 
and put a scenario of the workplace in there. You start a meeting 10 minutes late because the guy with the halo is 10 minutes late. You start a meeting 10 minutes late because the guy with the horns is 10 minutes late. You probably are going to overlook or be less mad about your bud who has the halo effect showing up late to start that meeting. You're probably going to be super mad about the person who has the horns effect showing up late and making you start late. So the premise is, is that when you look at any situation that you're about to get in conflict over, or you're about to be mad over or take to a manager over, if you put someone who has a halo in that same situation, would you react the same way? Mm. And the answer is almost always no. But until you start to look at it in a in a clear, descriptive way, right? Until we uh, until we name it and we make it intentional, we don't necessarily act upon that. So anytime anybody is about to get into conflict or about to raise an issue, that's almost always my question, right? Is this a halo horns thing? And sometimes it is. And you can just leave it at that, right? Yes, it really irritated me or it it prohibited me from doing better work than I normally would because that person's already on my nerves or I already don't work well with them or whatever the case may be. And naming it sometimes allows it to just stop. So that's kind of the halo horns effect that I think if if we talk about and if we assign it and if we stop and we think like, why am I feeling this way in this interaction and would I feel the same way with someone else? Mm -hmm. I think it's a huge difference maker when it comes to how we then take the next behavioral steps in a conflict. Are there ways that we coach employees around that though, right? So if I recognize that in your example, Josh, right? Josh annoys Mm -hmm. me. He's always late. Is there a way to coach my interactions with Josh so that I can attempt to help counteract that horn effect there? And then maybe also the flip side, right? Like to also recognize that Jeff shouldn't get a pass for everything he does just because we're buddies. Yes. Yes. And I think, again, I feel like all of my answers are like, yes, and. So, yes. So I would say the first thing in terms of if you're coaching in that situation is A, recognize that you have a little bit of a relationship gap between and and every you know horn situation doesn't necessarily come from relationship gap but in that instance it did and so recognizing as a manager or a coach of these people you've got to you've got to cross that gap in some way so maybe it means you know you create a some sort of an outing or a gathering or some sort of an activity that allows them to build relationship at a foundational level, not just a work-based level. Mm. So that would be piece one, right? Recognizing what is causing the horns and then trying to help remedy that. Piece two is I'm a firm believer in just naming it, right? So anytime we have a conversation and our our team personally from, from our TDNA's perspective is very small. We're a team of five. Uh, I will go out on a limb and say that I think we have a, a really excellent culture. And so sometimes it happens like with volunteers or with other organizations that we're working with or vendors, Mm -hmm. right? That's always, that's always one, but I think we just name it, right? So if somebody comes to me and they're talking about, this is a problem and we have a conflict and we can't get along and, you know, whatever that may be. And the question is, is like, is this a problem just because you don't like them? Mm -hmm. Like, did you give them horns? So we use the verbiage in our team because it's very clear. We've named it. And then all of a sudden somebody's like, oh, you're right. It's 
probably isn't as big of a deal as, as it needed to be. Mm-hmm. Or, yep, it's 100% because that person is is not a halo for me. They are not angelic, right? So <laughs> I think I think naming it and and being very clear about the fact that this is a f- probably a little bit of an underlying cause for the conflict. And then again, addressing any of those cultural relationship-based issues that I think pop up in everything. Cool. Yeah, I think that's that's a great way to to kind of view those pieces. Again, not that it fixes conflict, but at least to give us some core understanding of maybe where some of that conflict yep. is coming from. When when someone comes to you with conflict, right? And they're saying, hey, I'm really struggling with, or or even you're just seeing it happen, right? What do you think are some of the good options, approaches, methods that you can give to your team, um, your employees? That's a good question. So one of the things that I talk about when we when we have the ISAE session and when I'm talking about this with some other, you know, association professionals or really frankly, any industry, the core of the conflict is almost always not people. But I think we have this inherent ability just as humans to be like, oh, people, like they are what makes this so difficult. It's almost always not people. It's almost always a process issue, a procedural issue, a task-based issue that is kind of the the actual core of the conflict. Mm. So I would say in terms of somebody says they have a conflict, first thing is, can we just run the five why process on what this conflict is? Why are you having a disagreement? Why is this an issue? And then keep asking why. A lot of times I think we stop at the at the top level of a conflict. And so we'll address that top level, right? Jeff is late to a meeting. Cool. So the answer to that is to tell Jeff not to be late to a meeting anymore. If you kept probing a little bit more, you might figure out that like Jeff is late to a meeting because he worked until 2 a.m. last night because there were too many things on Jeff's plate. There were too many things on Jeff's plate because the other members of the team are shutting down their computers an hour early Mm. because they had somewhere to be. Right. So there are layers to every conflict. And so I think if you if you address only the one that's at first immediately being vocalized, you're never really fixing anything because there's a root cause somewhere in there that you've got to deal with, whether that's relationships, whether that's, you know, and I would say it's always a little bit of relationships, but whether it's based on process. And in that case, in that example, it, it truly was kind of a process procedural thing because seems like you have some balancing of work assignments to do. But so I would say root cause, first of all. Second of all, name halo and horns, right? What is the cause of this, this conflict? Is it, a, is it a personal thing that you are layering a lens on? And how do we address that? And then second thing, if it depends, right? If you are a manager or you're in charge of moving this conflict to an area of resolution, it's all about communication and it's all about having the conversation and like a couple practical tips when you start talking about those things is take, take that conversation with whether it's one of those people or both of those people and take it out of the office. Don't sit behind your desk and have Mm -hmm. them sit on the other side or even both of them. That's even worse. That's like, (laughs) let, let me sit here and fix this problem for you. 
Go to a neutral place. Go have coffee. Get out of the office and have a conversation that starts with other things. Anytime somebody brings a conflict to you as a manager, you have the opportunity to do a couple of really important things that I think are almost always missed. You have the opportunity to ask someone what is working. Almost always when you start that conversation, it's what's the problem, what is bad, what what do we need to fix? You have the opportunity to ask somebody what is working. That gives you so much information, right? Instead of just focusing on the bad. And then I think the other opportunity that you have is like, if, if we fix this, why do you want to continue to be here? Why is working here important to you? Why do you want to be part of this team? And I think anytime you ask those couple of questions outside of just sitting down, tell me what the problem is, you've gotten so much background information and the ability to stretch that conversation well beyond Somebody showed up late. Somebody didn't turn their work in. Somebody passed the buck to me when it really wasn't mine. So I would just say communication, relationships from a foundational level of all conflict, and then naming kind of what what the core issues are. Those would be my my top three. Yeah, I like the concept of starting with like the before we talk about what's wrong, right? Let's figure yeah. out what's working. Because if we can identify things that are working, right, we can draw from those and use the success yeah. to help fix the thing that's not. Um, yeah. So I think that's a really interesting approach. Um, I think the I think the other thing is I, I feel like a lot of times as managers or coaches or leaders within an association or a team or whatever, we feel like at the end of a conflict, there should be a resolution. Mm-hmm. Like we have a plan. We can, you know, check this box. There is a plan. I, th- I think we have to approach it a little bit differently. And the, the, there is not one singular right answer, one singular resolution to any type of conflict. So I think setting the stage for that with the people who are involved and saying, listen, here are some options we have that we can move forward with. If one of these doesn't work, we will try other ones. Mm. But I think leaving that open and saying, we're going to navigate this together leaves your communications open. It also erases that finality that some people have if they're not happy with the resolution. Because a lot of times, right, everybody's thing is like, that won't work because I've already tried that. But, and so I think leaving that open and saying, listen, we have a buffet of options for how we can move forward here. Let's try this one to start. That doesn't work. Let's try the next one and let's try the next one and let's try the one after that until we figure out a way. And that's, again, a communications thing, a relationship thing. It's a building a trust within your team that if you don't fix it on the first try, somebody believes you will help them fix it every other try after that. Yeah, I think until this point, we've talked a lot about kind of that internal conflict. So, you know, staff conflict, et cetera. No, but you mentioned, right, like obviously that conflict can happen with a variety of people. Uh, yeah. Vendors, right, I think would, I would agree, be a one that we probably see some some conflict with sometimes, right? We yes. need something, they need something, and those two things yes. are not the same always. And so uh, there can become some conflict there. But there's two kind of scenarios that I want to um, talk through specifically and see if there's any kind of feedback or recommendations you have. You know, obviously, we're volunteer-driven organizations, right? We all have boards. We've all got committee chairs, things like that. So if we start to experience conflict with a volunteer, right? Obviously, in your examples, it's an internal staff, right? You get to manage that. You get to say, you and you, 
in my office or at a coffee shop, whatever, right? We're going to talk this out. How does this approach, how does conflict resolution look different when it's a board member, it's a committee chair, but it's somebody who doesn't technically report to you. And in some cases, right, if it's you, (laughs) you may report Mm -hmm. to them. Um, So what does that, what does that kind of conflict resolution look like? That's always a hard one. And I think it always differs a little bit based around the culture of your organization, right? And so culture doesn't stop at just staff. Obviously, it it is your board. It is your volunteers. It is the culture that you help create, ultimately. So I think that's the caveat, right? It, the way that one organization handles it is going to look drastically different than the way another. I will say, for me, Anytime it's a volunteer that is not my board chair or not the board chair or the committee chair or whatever, as much effort as possible should be placed on making that kind of a peer-to-peer conversation. Mm. No volunteer wants to get uh, talked to, that was in quotes, talked to by their staff in terms of their volunteer performance, right? So first thing is trying to make that a peer-to-peer conversation always best, in my opinion, because they're hearing it from someone who is sitting in their shoes and someone who has the same in their mind goals as them. Mm. I will say though, that I almost always will prep the whether it's the board chair or the committee chair having that conversation with the other volunteer, I will almost always prep them first and make sure that they have adequate information, uh, but they also have the lens of staff. And so by that, I think it's really important to address that some things are truly frustrating because you are a staff member and this is your job. I will say before it ever gets to that point, a lot of those get shut down at the staff level. If you're talking about being between staff and volunteers, because it truly is, again, naming it, right? You are staff. You work on this every day. They are volunteers. They work on this maybe 15 minutes, maybe 15 hours, (laughs) and both have pros and cons. But understanding that there is a level of not care that's different, but a level of attention that is different. And it will create some of those things inherently. So we, if, as long as we're naming it and we have that conversation internally, a lot of those conflicts don't even like make it out the door. Right. I will say though, like you, you will always have challenging volunteers at the end of every day. And so if the conflict is staff to volunteer, I think we've identified a couple really important questions to ask, which is one, is this hurting people or the association? And I think that identifies a little bit where the next step goes, because if it is a person to person conflict having to do with staff and volunteers, we would handle that very differently than if it is a person association conflict. So I think it's just, And we could talk for hours about what this looks like, but I think it is identifying the type of conflict, identifying the lens that has to do with the conflict, and then identifying the right people to have that conversation um, all around. But uh, volunteers are hard, right? They are the best and the worst part of what we do, in my opinion. (laughs) You love them and the work that they do and the passion that they bring, but it it does pose a challenge, especially because back to that culture thing, 
building an organizational culture is so much harder than just building a staff culture. Yeah. Um, and so you have to, it takes time and intentionality and effort. And as soon as you hit that point where you're like, listen, our, our culture is great and we're, we're chugging along. You have new volunteers that enter that pipeline and start to like change and morph all of the things that you did. And so it's never done. It's never, I built a really good culture. And so we have less conflict or we have really good relationships. It's a, I built a really good culture. We created this environment where people want to be, but I have to be intentional about addressing it and nurturing it each and every year, each and every Mm -hmm. month, each and every day, honestly. So I think I, I still truly think that the foundation of managing some of those conflicts is in the relationships. If you have true meaningful relationships with your board leadership, with your committee leaders, with volunteers, frankly, that makes everything so much easier. Well, and as you're talking about the culture piece too, right? Uh, I think that conflict can come from culture because, right, if you've got those new volunteers who are coming in and they have either a different expectation of what the culture should be, or they just want a different culture, right? Right there, you're going to have conflict because the established culture is not what they want. And as a volunteer, they do have some influence on what that will become. And so they're going to start to move the needle in the direction that they want it, which obviously is the the staff executive, right, is maybe not what you're looking for. The other, go ahead. No, I was going to say, yes. I mean, all of those things are so hard to navigate. And I, I, at the end of the day, I think it comes back to like open and honest communication and, and meaningful relationships. Because if you have a board member who is coming in, who wants a different culture to your point, and you have a, a relationship with them built already. Like ideally they have been bubbling around in your association and they're not just a total stranger. That's a whole nother scenario, but, but you have a meaningful relationship with them. They feel comfortable with you. They can sit down with you and speak frankly and openly and honestly about, Hey, these are the issues I see with the culture or the direction of the organization or whatever it may be that they want to change. And then that communication should should drive building something different or make adjustments or tweak or whatever that looks like. I think I think the challenge, and again, back to that piece of conflict is like you don't have those relationships. You've never sat down and had a conversation. And so all of those things start to try and happen outside of you and outside of your your sphere. As we wrap up, one kind of final question here. I think a lot of our conversations so far have revolved around something that you as the person at the center of something might have some influence over, you know, so in your role as the staff executive, right, you've, you have the ability to grab your staff, you have the ability to create that culture. What are some of your recommendations if you can't participate in that, right? So you're thinking, and and maybe this is some larger organizations, right? I know you said you have a smaller team. And so Mm -hmm. um, you're probably involved in most of those things. But right, if if I'm reporting to somebody in an organization and they're not the chief staff executive, how do, or it's a peer to peer conflict, right? Right. How do we have those conversations without maybe necessarily, how do we address that conflict without having to bring in the chief staff executive, (laughs) you know, um, how do we start to try to implement some of those things on our own before they have to be elevated to a higher person? Yeah. 
That's a good question. At the risk of sounding a wee bit like a broken record, (laughs) I would say the first thing you can do is have strong relationships with the people that you are on a team with, right? So it's much easier to sit down with someone and have that conversation. The second thing I would say is always really important to do is be comfortable saying, hey, I would like us to set the tone and some ground rules for this conversation. Mm. That doesn't mean you set all the rules. That means you are inviting them to participate with you in setting the tone and guide and and guardrails, frankly, for the conversation you want to have. So, you know, and establish what those are, right? So earlier, ideally, when you first get to an association or start to think really strategically about your career or tomorrow, tomorrow would be a great time to start. Set down some guardrails that are important to you as you have areas of conflict. So I, I'm going to commit to not saying, you know, you said, because that tends to be such a critical piece of conflict that we could just avoid, right? Mm-hmm. Not a, you said, but what I heard you say, how you made me feel mm. you're only one piece of that. So uh, there's a ton of like research and information out there about just very small, tangible things that you can do around resolving a conflict. And the first thing is is feeling comfortable and saying, I would like to set, I I would like to make sure that we're both comfortable in this conversation. I want it to remain open and frank. And here are a couple of the things that I think we could do or shouldn't do. What do you think? So I think creating a collective understanding of what that conversation is going to look like is the first thing that you can do. I think the second thing is going back to that piece of solutions, right? You have two people who are already in conflict and they're sitting down trying to resolve their conflict. It's like a negotiation. At the end of the day, someone at least is going to end up unhappy with whatever your solution is, right? Mm -hmm. So I think keeping that open at the end in saying, let's come up with three or four solutions, not just one. And then let's try the first one. And maybe we reconvene in a week and Mm. see if that worked. And then let's come back to the next one. And then the next one after that. And so I think fighting back against that urge of we have to solve this today, we have to solve this right now, and we have to solve this in one way. So that's what I would say. Because at the end of the day, if you go to a manager or a, a leader or a you know association executive or whatever that looks like for you, if you go to them and you're like, hey, we have tried these five things to resolve this conflict, they're going to love you so much. Because they will, A, know that you've tried, you've tried. I mean, that's really, that speaks volumes. But B, also, like you've now shortened this window. You've already tried these five things. We know they don't work. Mm -hmm. So we're probably going to be able to get to a resolution a little bit quicker. So I would say those those are the top two things. One, setting the tone and the guardrails. And two, making sure that you walk out of there saying, we may not have the perfect answer right now, but here are four things we will commit to trying to solve this. Yeah, absolutely. I think... Uh, I know I said that was my last question, but I am I'm curious because you've said it over and over throughout today, right? So relationships are important. Mm-hmm. Are there some core elements, core pieces of knowledge that we should know about everyone that we work with that at least get us to kind of, as you've mentioned, right, a base level of a relationship? You know, obviously, I think in every workplace, you're going to have folks who you're better 
I'm going to say work friends with, right? You're closer yeah. to those folks. Those are the ones that as soon as something comes up, you're like, I want to be on their team, right? right. It's just like the lab the lab partner thing in high school yes. or college, right? Like, oh, yes. please don't put me with this person. I want to be with them. <laughs> um, you know, but what are some of those really simple things that we can do to gain some knowledge and strengthen some of those relationships? So super simple things. And I could talk for days about from like a leadership perspective, I think everybody has the ability to lead from wherever they are. So I don't think these are tasked with just your staff executive or your department manager or whatever. I think this is literally a responsibility of everyone. Super easy things, right? How was your weekend Mm. on a Monday instead of here's the 54 things we need to get accomplished today? Right. Showing a little grace and understanding, right? So it may not be that everybody wants to share everything all at once. So just like we want information about others and we want to share information about ourselves, you you have to understand that people will do that in their own time. So none of these are immediate fixes. So how was your weekend? I, I do think that there's something really substantial. This is so dumb and so easy, but naming it, right? Really substantial and asking people about their pets. That's like my go-to that will, that is the segue to literally every meaningful conversation in the world, right? Do you have pets? If you don't have pets, why don't you have pets? (laughs) People love, and, and that tends to be one of the areas where people are relatively fine being open pretty quickly. Uh, I'm pretty sure most people's dogs don't have like state secrets and they're trying to protect something. They're just, it's a comfortable conversation. So I would start with pets. I do think that as you start to build some of those meaningful relationships, right? Like it goes from a, what are the elements of your life to why are those things important? And so I think understanding that like you got to start somewhere and then transitioning to some of those pieces of, I know that, you know, Jeff's dog is really important to him because he got the dog right after he lost his brother. Or, you know, somebody's cat is meaningful to them because X, Y, Z. And so I think understanding that there's a transition in the information that you receive from people. So starting somewhere with something super simple, I will also say just tangibles, right? Like any time that you have a virtual setting with staff, you should be asking at least one non-work question a day. I don't know what your main communication thing is, whether it's Slack or Teams or whatever that looks like for you, but like one non-work question a day, it will not throw off productivity (laughs) at all, I promise. And it will probably increase it. But I, I do think those relationships are core to preventing conflict, to solving conflict, to having meaningful communication and conversations around conflict. Um, so I just, I, I can't say it enough. It's the engine of success, right? Good relationships, build better ideas, build better results, and then morale improves. And now you've started the whole engine over again. So, yeah, I, I really like that. What, why concept there? What about them? And why is that important to them? Or why is that the thing they believe? So I think that's a really just simple and key thing to take away to build those relationships yeah. that, right, we discussed today are so foundational. Well, Tara, thank you so much. Um, as you mentioned, we could probably talk for hours on this, uh, right? I mean, we could bring up specific situations and we could talk through how we would handle those. Um, But I think that this has been a really good conversation. And I think it helps us to, again, just think about some of those base level pieces as we approach conflict. Again, probably nobody likes 
to address conflict. Right. Um, but it's an important component in the work that we do. And it's inevitable, right? There will always yeah. be something that comes up. If folks are interested in learning a little bit more, or they want to get in touch with you to chat about this topic, how could somebody reach you? Yeah. Um, so Tara dot Pucky, and I'll spell the last name P-U-C-K-E-Y at gmail.com works just fine. I would love to have conversations about conflict and culture and anything leadership related. Some of my favorite things to talk about and train on and try and help uh, in any way. And then at the same time, I love having a group of peers that I can also bounce ideas off of because I think at the end of the day, we all have growth. Mm -hmm. We all have room for learning uh, and improvement and innovation. So I'd love to chat. Perfect. Well, thank you again. Um, This was a good conversation. Thank you. I appreciate it. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of You Should Hear This. If you have any questions you'd like answered or future topics you'd like us to explore, please send us an email at info at isae.org.